Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Thank you so much for leading us in prayer. Um, open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. We're in Genesis chapter 9. Um, if you did not bring a Bible, that's okay. We do have paperback Bibles in front of the chairs Uh, in front of you, so you can grab one of those and turn to page four. It would be very helpful if you were able to follow along with the passage, as is usual here at New Life. I want to make just a couple of um, uh, announcements, reminders here before we get started. First of all, um, as Bob prayed, we're very excited about discipleship classes starting uh, again, um, otherwise known as Sunday school classes. We call them discipleship our classes, and so those will be 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, 10 to about 10.45, 10.50, before the 11 a.m. service. Um, we've got an adult class starting, uh, led by Pastor Brian, uh, on Scripture, kind of just a, a class on Scripture. If you have questions about the Bible in general, I uh, would highly recommend that. We're also going to have children's classes starting. That's March 14th, so Exploring New Life class starts that same Sunday, so that's a, a big big Sunday for us, March 14th. We're looking forward to that. Um, apologies for the problem with the screen here, particularly if you're on this side of the sanctuary. Uh, I'm told this will be fixed. Uh, this week we'll have both screens next week. Um, and then let me remind you about the missions conference that is coming up this coming weekend, actually. So it's uh, coming up quickly, and it's going to begin Friday night, this coming Friday night, with a missions dinner starting at 6 o'clock here at the church. And uh, we do have some additional space, but we are going to cap the number of people coming so that we can observe social distancing properly. So um, if you want to come and you haven't signed up, you need to do that really quickly. Uh, if you don't sign up, we can't allow you to come because we need to get a count on the, uh, how much money to prov- or how much food to provide. So um, sign up for the dinner if you haven't yet and you want to come. That's this Friday night and the next Sunday will be Mission Sunday. So very excited about an opportunity to communicate with our missionaries and to focus our hearts on the task of taking the gospel to the nations. That's this coming weekend. Well, um, we got some bad news uh, this past week regarding um, a Christian leader named Ravi Zacharias. Uh, Perhaps some of you have heard of this situation. Ravi actually passed away back in May 2020. And um, <clears throat> Ravi Zacharias was a, a very effective apologist. That's uh, someone who defends the Christian faith, uh, wrote many books, do a lot of public speaking and debating. Uh, probably some, maybe many of you have his books and have read his books. Uh, he's known as one of the most effective defenders of the Christian faith in the last 50 years. I mean, he's a pretty well-known guy. And last week, we were stunned to find out that um, Robbie Zacharias, apparently guilty of uh, a number of incidents of sexual abuse, misuse of funds, spiritual manipulation, paying off his victims. And the report about him didn't come from some independent agency with an axe to grind against him. It was his own ministry who conducted this investigation and came to these conclusions. There were rumors circulating about this. The ministry denied them to begin with, conducted their investigation, and now come out and said, yeah, it's, it, it's true. 
it's uh, just so hard to accept. You know, here's a man who's a brilliant communicator, a hero to many Christians, quite sure that many people likely brought to faith in Jesus through Ravi's ministry, and now it would appear that he was a fraud. I mean, the question is even raised about whether the man was even a Christian. I mean, who knows? I don't know his heart. But um, a lot of Christians are struggling to make sense of this, to process this. How do we make sense when something like this happens? When we see somebody that we were so confident in, we had so much hope in, we were so excited about, we leaned on him so diligently and so constantly, and now he turns out to be a disappointment. How do we make sense of this? Well, in the same way we make sense of anything in this world, that is, we look to the scriptures. <laughs> we see what the scriptures have to say. The, the news we've been hearing is the, the sin of Ravi, um, but today we're going to be talking about the sin of Noah. And we're going to learn some things about this that might help us to process what has happened. We're going through a sermon series on the book of Genesis here at New Life. We've been going through this book, just one passage at a time. We've reached here now. Uh, Chapter 9, we've been looking at the story of the flood, Noah's flood, over the last several Sundays. And, um, you know, today we're going to see Noah here. Noah comes out of that flood as kind of a hero, you know. I mean, he's the guy who got his family on the ark and survived the flood, and he came off that ark. And, uh, you know, I'm sure if there was anybody on the earth at the time, there wasn't, but if there was anybody on the earth, I'm sure they would have come to Noah and say, wow, tell me what this was about. He would have been a celebrity, They would have been asking him to write books. He would have gotten all sorts of deals. He would have been speaking at Gospel Coalition and all the great conferences, you know. I mean, he would have been a celebrity. And yet we look at this text here today and we find out kind of another disappointment, quite frankly. Noah's sin. What we learn here today, the message of the Bible, over and over and over is simply this, that the Bible is not about these great men doing great things for God, it's about a great God who saves sinful men and women. That's the message of the Bible. And that's what we're gonna see here in Genesis 9. So if you have that passage, please stand if you're able. I'm gonna read verses 18 through 29. So we're just finishing the story of the flood here today. This is the last narrative or last event in Noah's story. It actually has the very first recorded words of Noah, and the only recorded words of Noah are in this passage. So um, Genesis 9, starting with verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. 
After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Holy Spirit, come and please open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so, the sin of Noah. What do we learn here about the sin of Noah? I want to look at this from three angles. And so the first here is the timing of Noah's sin. When does this sin happen? I think it's very instructive for us, but let's kind of look at some of what the text tells us here first before we get to that point. Starting in verse 18, again, the, the flood is over, rain has stopped, waters have receded, the, Noah has, or the ark has landed on, on the ground, and Noah and his family have now come off the ark onto the dry land, and uh, we're told here about Noah's sons in verse 18, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, a note is made parenthetically here at the end of verse 18 telling us that Ham was the father of Canaan. Now, why would that little comment be thrown in there? It might seem um, kind of beside the point, you know? Why is this being noted? And I think the reason is this. There's something about the book of Genesis that I actually haven't even told you yet during this series. Maybe I should have mentioned this earlier, but I think it's an important thing to consider, and that is this. Who was Genesis written for? I mean, it was written for us in one sense, but the author of Genesis was writing Genesis for a, a particular audience. There was this particular group of people that this book was written for in its time. Who is that? <laughs> That's very important to understand. Who is this letter written for? And so we, we believe that Moses is the one who wrote the book of Genesis under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And... Probably Moses wrote this during the time in the wilderness right after Israel had been liberated from Egypt in the Exodus. And the Exodus, of course, described for us in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. So as Israel came out of Egypt, they were in the wilderness wandering around. They didn't have the scriptures like we do, but they knew something amazing had just happened, which is that somebody parted the Red Sea so they could get out of Egypt, and they're told it's this God who did this. And so Moses, most likely, is writing the book of Genesis here to communicate to Israel who this God is. I'll tell you who the God is who parted the Red Sea. It's the God who created the entire universe, the God who created humankind and all the animals and the seas and the mountains and the planets. That's the God who parted the sea for you. And so, Moses is writing this for the Israelites. Now, when Israel was in the promised land, excuse me, when Israel was in the wilderness, they were getting ready to enter the promised land. Remember in the book of Exodus? That was God's charge, enter the promised land. Well, the promised land was also known as the land of Canaan, right? The land of Canaan. So, Israel is about to enter into a very hostile relationship with people in the land of Canaan. That's where all of their worst enemies are, in the land of Canaan. These are the people who are against God's people and fought against God's people. And so what Moses is doing here at the end of verse 18, he's saying Ham was the father of Canaan, by the way. Any Israelite reading that would go, ah, I get it, I see, okay, thank you. What Moses is doing is providing some history to Israel's very worst enemies. All of our enemies come from Ham, the guy who does something fairly notorious, which I'll show you here in just a moment. So I think that's what Moses is doing 
uh, with that comment. He's, he's explaining to Israel something that would have been on their minds. Who are these Canaanites? Well, we're going to hear a little bit about the history of them as we look at the story of Ham. Um, so, <clears throat> Ham's sin. So here's um, what happens. The flood, the flood has ended, as I mentioned, and um, Noah comes off the ark and he gets busy. And so that's how the passage begins in verse 20. He becomes a man of the soil and he plants a vineyard. Well, what comes from a vineyard? Grapes, right? And what comes from grapes? Oh, grape juice, yes, but also wine. And so we see here Noah apparently is preparing his own wine from the grapes, from his vineyard. And what does Noah do with this wine? Well, he, he drinks it, but he didn't just drink it. He drank a lot of it. And according to verse 21, he becomes drunk. This is Noah's sin, drunkenness. And he must have drunk a lot of wine. I mean, he is so drunk that he's passed out in his tent, and somehow his clothes got off. You know, we're not told how or why that happened necessarily, but there he is, lying naked in his tent, totally inebriated, drunk. And this is a description of Noah's sin. And so, um, verse 22 then tells us what Ham did. And so, verse 22, Ham, then you see that phrase again, the father of Canaan. Here's the ancestor of all of Israel's enemies. Well, what did Ham do? He saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So Ham walks in. He sees his father naked. What should he have done? He should have covered his nakedness. Here is his dad in a state of disgrace and dishonor. And when Ham comes in, apparently what he does is he kind of giggles and walks outside his tent and tells his brothers, Shem and Japheth, guys, you gotta come in and see this. Look at dad in here. Isn't this hilarious? Come in and see this man lying here. He's stone cold drunk, he can't even get up. The implication is that there's a dishonoring of Ham's father that is happening here. Now some people have said that maybe Ham did something illicit or you know, twisted to his father. I, I don't think there's any evidence for that because we see the way his brothers act, which is the proper way, Shem and Japheth, verse 23. What do they do? They take a garment and they lay it on their shoulders. They walk backward into the tent so as not to see their father. They're paying their father proper respect. And it says very clearly at the end of verse 23, they did not see their father's nakedness. So seeing the father's nakedness, that's the sin, part of the sin. Shem and Japheth make sure that that doesn't happen. So we've got a Ham doing something fairly notorious. We'll, we'll hear a little more about that in a little bit. But this wouldn't have happened if Noah hadn't gotten stone cold drunk, lying there naked in his tent. So if we could take just a moment, it's probably appropriate that we think about this issue of drunkenness a little bit. I mean, what does the Bible say about the use of alcohol and, and wine in particular? I mean, remember, this is Noah. This is the hero of the flood. This is the guy who was called righteous. He was blameless in his generation. He was unlike anybody else. A lot of high expectations in Noah, and yet here he is 
in this embarrassing, disgraceful position. So the Bible would say this. The, the scriptures do tell us that alcohol, that wine specifically, is a gift of God. So let me show you this in Psalm 104. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. So there is some scriptures that would tell us that wine is something that does not need to be rejected, that it is a gift of God for our enjoyment, assuming it's used responsibly, moderately, lawfully, but there are, as you all know, great dangers to the use of alcohol. And so the scriptures speak very frequently about that as well. So here's Proverbs 23. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags. It's not good to be a drunkard. That's the point. Isaiah 5 is as well, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. You know, we see some people that boast at how much beer or wine that they, they, they can tolerate and how much they can drink. And the world, in some cases, admires that. The Bible does not admire that. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. And Ephesians just comes right out as clear as can be. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. The scriptures would command us to be, to be filled with, to be intoxicated, if I could use that word, with the Holy Spirit and warns against being, to, warns against being intoxicated with, with any other substance, whether it be beer or wine or marijuana or methamphetamine, any controlled substance that would intoxicate you, the scriptures would say, don't do it. It's a sinful thing. And Noah here is guilty of that very sin. But what is so instructive here, and by the way, there's just you know, a lot of different opinions about that, and you know, if you're a Christian who's just convicted, I should just never drink alcohol, you know, that, that's fine. You should follow your conscience and, 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 and not drink. But there is nothing in the Bible that would say you should never ever, that no Christian should ever drink alcohol. And so it, it's up to the individual conscience and who is in a state of maturity to be able to handle alcohol. Uh, but something to be very careful about, very wise about. But it's the timing of Noah's sin here that I want to kind of draw the most attention to, the timing of his drunkenness. Because um, think about what has just occurred, right? There's been a flood. Noah was in the ark. I mean, imagine how stressful that must have been for Noah, for God to come to him and say, I'm, I'm going to wipe out the world, but I want you to be the one I'm going to use to save humanity. And so get on this ark, and he's on the ark for an entire year with all these smelly, stinky animals and his family, and he doesn't know what's going on outside. But he knows that God has promised to destroy the world. I mean, that would qualify as a stressful time. Wouldn't you say that? <laughs> that would be a hard thing to go through that that might even be considered a crisis, a trial of some sort. That would be difficult for Noah. We get no indication in the scriptures that Noah ever sinned in the ark or during the hard time. And in fact, the scripture says he did everything God commanded him. When did he sin? When did it happen? Was it on the ark during the stressful time? No, it was when he was off the ark during the easy time. That's when he sinned. 
he's off the ark, the flood is done, he's planting his vineyard, he got a whole earth to explore, got his family there, things are good. This is awesome. The rain stopped, the sun's out, it's beautiful out here. I don't have to worry about a flood anymore. The crisis is done, the stress is over. And that's when Noah sins. Friends, I think there's a warning here that your temptation to sin is likely not to occur during stressful times, it's during easy times. Your likelihood to sin is not when you're enduring a trial because typically when you're going through a trial, that's when your gaze is fixed on Jesus. That's when you want to pray. That's when you want to be in the word. Thank God for affliction. Thank God for trials. I know they're hard. I know they're difficult. But we get a warning here that very often it's when the affliction is over, that's when temptation is greatest. That seemed to be the case for Noah. Could be the case for you. Certainly the case for me. So the timing of Noah's sin. Well, let's go on and think of the next thing here, the significance of Noah's sin. Sin of drunkenness, why is it so significant? Why is it being recorded here? What's the big deal? Well, you might remember a couple of uh, Sundays ago when we looked at the end of the flood that I was telling you that um, with the flood being over, it was time for uh, creation humanity to start over do you remember that there was a new beginning the flood was like an act of decreation then God steps in and recreates the world there's a second chance for everybody we can have a new beginning and so Noah then comes off this ark as another Adam kind of he's he's a different kind of Adam a new head of the human race look at verse 19 these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. That kind of sounds like Adam, doesn't it? It's from Adam all the people of the world were dispersed. Well, now everybody's been wiped out in the flood, so now it's from Noah all the earth is going to be dispersed through his three sons. And so this highlights the significance of Noah's sin because there's a lot of expectation in Noah. There's a lot of high hopes for Noah. He's the head of the new human race. We're starting over with him. But what we find here is that there are some very interesting similarities <clears throat> between Noah and Adam. The text is clearly presenting Noah to us as a different kind of Adam. So I want to show you this. It's kind of hidden in the details a little bit, but let me show you this. Look at the similarities. Where the sin took place. For Adam it was in a garden, for Noah it was in a vineyard. Very similar. How about what actually happened? Adam ate fruit, Noah drank wine, which comes from fruit. How about their character? Adam was sinless before the fall, Noah was blameless. Chapter 6, verse 9 uses that word to describe Noah. How about the outcome of the incident? Adam naked in the garden, and he realized. His sin, it said he was filled with shame. With Noah, he's naked in his tent and also covered with shame. How about how they responded, Adam and Noah? It says in chapter 3, verse 7, that Adam's eyes were opened and he realized he was naked. If you look at verse 24 in chapter 9, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. Adam 
wakes up, so to speak, and realizes his sin and he's filled with shame. Here Noah wakes up from his slumber and he knows what happened to him. He knows what his son did to him. And then the last thing, as the kind of both incidents here are concluded, God comes and covers Adam with a garment of skin and with Noah, his two brothers come in and cover him with a garment that was on their shoulders. When you see these similarities, they're, they're, they're pretty clear. What Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to see about the significance of this is that here is Noah, another Adam, but we also have another fall. In Genesis 3, it was the fall of humankind. Now humankind is starting over, and they fall again. Another disappointment. <laughs> another person with whom we had these great expectations, and they fell short of what we were hoping for. Friends, there's a warning here against our temptation to put too much hope in anybody, any man or woman on this earth. We live in a celebrity culture. We have this temptation to look up so much to people who are great in sports and great in the movies and great in politics and even great in religion. We have this tendency for hero worship and we look to people and we put our expectation in them and our hope in them and we think that everything will be fine as long as this person or that person is doing their work. And then we see stories like Noah and we hear stories like Robbie Zacharias and we're disappointed and we're crushed. But friends, the scripture says don't, don't trust in human beings. I don't care whether it's Martin Luther or John Calvin or Donald Trump or Joe Biden. I mean, there are people in the church who have way too much hope in Donald Trump. Way too much. He is not our savior. And there are others so happy that Donald Trump is gone that their hope is in Joe Biden. He's not going to save you either. You don't put your hope in human beings. You don't put your hope in Tim Keller or John Piper. We don't put our hope in C.S. Lewis and Robbie Zacharias. And you don't put your hope in Pastor Brian or Pastor Bob either. None of us is worthy of your hopes and expectations. We're all going to disappoint you when you get to know us. We will. We're not trying to, but we just will. Here's what Psalm 146 says. Put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. These human beings are not worthy of your expectation and hopes, but friends, Jesus Christ is. Jesus is worthy of your hope. Put your hope in him. Put your confidence in him. Look to him. Lean on him. I assure you, no one's ever going to uncover a sex scandal in the life of Jesus. No one's ever going to find that Jesus Christ is guilty of the misuse of funds. No one's ever going to find that Jesus Christ abused his power. And nobody's going to uncover some evidence that Jesus Christ was a racist. That is not going to happen. Jesus is the only perfect man, the only one who always did it right, the only one who is worthy of your confidence and expectations and hope. As it was said in Mark chapter 7, after Jesus healed this deaf man, um, somebody says, he has done all things well. <laughs> Jesus has done all things well. He has always done things with excellence. And the most excellent thing he did was give his life for sinners like you and me. 
So that's the significance of Noah's sin. He's, he's a disappointment. Now, I don't want to be too hard on Noah, <laughs> and I don't mean to put Noah and Robbie Zacharias in the same category. I mean, I, I don't know what to think about Robbie's faith, you know? I don't know, but I think it's pretty clear Noah was a man of faith, that we're going to meet Noah in glory. Uh, he was a righteous man. That definitely describes his life overall, uh, but he had a significant failure here. And so what we need is a remedy for our sin, and so that's the next thing, the remedy for Noah's and your sin. As we get to the end of this passage here, there are more similarities actually to the fall, more similarities to what happened in Genesis 3, the first fall. Um, There was after the fall, you might remember, God came and spoke to the serpent and he pronounced um, a curse and a blessing. Right? There was the blessing of a coming descendant of Eve, but there was also a curse on the serpent. Well, we see blessing and curses here in this passage. Verse 25, there's a curse, and in verse 26, there's a blessing. So let's look at these. Verse 25, the curse. This is Noah speaking now, Noah's first words, only words. God speaking through Noah says, cursed be Canaan. Now that should strike you as a little bit odd. Why is Canaan being cursed? Why isn't Ham being cursed? Ham's the one that walked into the tent and saw his father's nakedness and didn't cover it. Ham is the one who committed the sin, so why is Canaan, Ham's son, being cursed? And it it could be the reason is simply this, that Noah was wronged by his son, Ham, and so now Ham's gonna kinda know what it's like. His son is gonna be cursed. But in any case, what we get is this kind of the idea of descendants. There's descendants here that a curse and a blessing goes down birth lines over the ages. Remember Genesis 3.15. Again, this is still flowing from that promise. There's going to be a descendant of the woman who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. But there's going to be descendants of the serpent who are going to go down the ages. And there's going to be enmity between the two. And that line of the serpent is now continuing through Ham and Canaan and all down through the ages. In next chapter, chapter 10, we're going to find that some of the descendants of Canaan include people like the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Egyptians. I mean, if you know anything about your Old Testament history, you'll know that all of them are the very worst enemies of God's people. And they are all descendants of Ham through Canaan, so that's the cursed line. That's what's happening here. There's a curse on that line. But we go to verse 26, and we see that there's a blessing. But this is a little bit surprising, too, because look what it says. He also said, blessed be Shem. That's kind of what you'd expect if it was a curse on Ham and Canaan. No, blessed be the Lord. We're not looking for any hope in Shem. It's like the writer is just reminding us, don't hope in people. Don't hope in men and women. Don't hope in Shem. Blessed be the Lord. The Lord is the one who's going to succeed for you. The Lord is the one worthy of your trust. Trust in him. Look to him. Noah, um, we see at the very end of the passage, suffers the same curse as everybody else. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. So the curse continues with Noah. We can't hope in him. We can't hope in Shem. Who who do we hope in? We hope in what the Lord's going to do. And what is the Lord going to do? 
That promise in Genesis 3.15 that a descendant is coming, a Messiah is coming, God's going to keep it going. He's not giving up. Noah's sin is not going to obstruct God's faithfulness. Noah's failure is not going to get in the way of God accomplishing what he wants in redeeming sinners for himself. And the way he's going to do that, we learn in Luke chapter 3. Jesus Christ, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, son of Heli, and then it goes on and it names all these ancestors of Jesus, and eventually it says, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. This is what the Lord's going to do. He's not going to raise up a Noah or a Shem for us to worship as a hero. He's going to fulfill his promise to send a Savior through the line of Shem. And that Savior is Jesus, and he is the remedy for your sin and for mine. He is our only hope to be freed from our sin. And it's true, Jesus did die. That's true. Noah died. Jesus died. The thing about Jesus is he didn't stay dead. (laughs) He died on the cross. And when he died there, he paid the penalty for sins. And after three days, he was risen from the dead. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he lives today, friends. He is alive today for all who will look to him. And the fact is, friends, is that one day, you're going to die too. Just like Robbie Zacharias died, just like Noah died, you're going to die And when you die, you're going to stand before God, and the question is this. As you stand before God, will you stand there naked and ashamed, or will your sins be covered? Which will it be? Will you stand there covered in your disgrace and your guilt for your entire life, or do you have confidence? Do you know that you'll be covered Like God came and covered Adam. Like the brothers came and they covered Noah. Jesus came to cover your sin. When he died on the cross, if you receive him, you can know your sin is covered. And when you meet God one day, you don't have to stand there in shame and fear. Jesus will have covered it completely because he paid the penalty in the blood that he shed on his cross and in his resurrection from the dead. How do you know that that's true for you? You need to repent, turn from your sin, acknowledge to God your sin, the ways you've offended him, and that might involve abusive substances. It might involve drunkenness of all sorts. God will forgive that sin, as well as any number of other sins in your life. You confess those to him, believe on his name, and the promise is that your sins will be removed from you and that eternal life will be yours. Not because you're a great person, not because you're hoping in some hero person on this earth, but because your hope is in the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Do you have that confidence? It's, It's a blessing like no other to know that when you pass into the next life, you can stand without fear knowing your sins are covered. Let it be said of you, friends, blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. And it's in Christ alone and in him alone that that can happen. And it's appropriate that we close our service by singing that great song. But let's pray first.
Our Lord, we thank you that you have made provision for our sin, that you have sent a remedy for our sin in the person of your Son. Father, would you please wean us off our dependence to all human beings who cannot satisfy our longing and turn our hearts and gaze to Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our King. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.